Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be having a conversation about consciousness, probably one of the thorniest, most controversial, and most difficult subjects in all of scientific investigation. But we want to start in a, in a thoroughly unscientific way by just trying to manipulate your experience a little bit. We'll see if we can get any traction. Are you game, Robert? Let's do it. Okay. So if you are able, if you're not operating a vehicle or juggling hatchets or something like that at the moment, please try this weird little meditation exercise with us. I want you to focus on an object in front of you. It can be any object. Uh, it should be something that stays in place that you can continually return your gaze to. Yeah. So look at look at uh, a detail on the wall. Don't yeah. look at your own reflection. Uh, maybe don't look outside the window at mm. uh, passing cars. Your own reflection is just too interesting. Right. And it's going to move and then you're going to fall over. It's just yeah, and too beautiful. No. Okay. So, yeah, pick an object. Focus on it. Look at it. And think for a little bit, just contemplate the physical processes involved in sight. You don't have to know all the science. Uh, just think about the light passing from that object to your eyes, uh, reflecting off that object, coming into your eyes, being uh, filtered through the lenses of your eyes, coming onto the retina, this layer of light-sensitive cells, being turned into information, electrical impulses that are transported into the brain via your optic nerve. And look at your object and think about the light passing through all the stages it goes through to get to your mind, to form the image that you're seeing right now, not just the object itself, but your perception of it. Here's the question. Where does it feel like this process ends? Physically, where does it feel like this process ends? Scientifically, you might know something about the visual processing center of your brain, but don't worry about that. Where does it just subjectively feel like the image is going? Or where does it feel like you are seeing it? Where's the part of your mind that recognizes what you're looking at? Or even just the part of your, your body to go beyond that. Sure. Now, for me, I'd say default, if I'm not trying anything weird, I guess it feels sort of like it's located somewhere near the front of my skull, sort of hovering behind my face. Uh, but I often wonder if it only feels that way because I've sort of been taught to think of my brain and specifically my prefrontal cortex as the seat of higher thought. And if you feel something similar or really no matter where you feel like this seeing is taking place, try a weird experiment. See if you can move it. I sometimes find that if I relax and focus my attention I can, though this sounds weird, subjectively move the center of seeing back in my head where I trick my mind into feeling like I'm really seeing it somewhere further back in my skull, pushing that perceptive mind space further and further back, maybe just going outside the skull. Can you imagine feeling that like you are seeing in a place outside of your own head? Yeah, I've experienced this sort of thing before. Yeah, I mean, you can, uh, you can also, in addition to moving this, uh, this sort of imagined, uh, spot of consciousness, besides moving it around in the skull and outside of the skull, there's also the ability to move it down your spine, into your heart, into your belly. Uh, and then again, yeah, moving it outside of the body. Yeah, now, of course, seeing isn't the only mental activity that we have conscious awareness of. So you could try similar experiments with perceptive activities other than just the imagination of the mind's eye. You could try to move the part of you that perceives sounds, or you could try to move your internal monologue. So we're talking about meditative states here, really. Yeah. And uh, it's important to note that there are multiple forms of meditation entailing uh, varying methods of closed eye, open eye, visually aided meditation, audibly aided meditation, walking meditation, yogic meditation, etc. 
And in terms of imagining, uh, we're going to get into some of the different uh, views that have existed throughout time about different places in the body that consciousness is centered. But also it's worth noting that out-of-body states factor into a number of different faiths and supernatural worldviews. Uh, there's actually an interesting version of this in Scientology. Oh, yeah? Uh, that's called uh, exteriorization. Oh, boy. So the, the idea here is that... Um, uh, and this is this is right off of what is Scientology.org. Uh, the state of the Thetan being outside of his body with or without full perception, but still able to control and handle the body. When a person goes exterior, he achieves a, a certainty that he is himself and not in his body. And to explain that in, under Scientology, a Thetan is essentially the, the concept of a soul. Not to be confused with a body thetan, which is uh, like a disembodied thetan that's lodged in your body and it's causing physical and mental problems and you have to exercise it via auditing. Yeah, this uh, sort of interrogation process. Right, yeah, which we touched on in our episode on uh, religious technology. Yeah. If you want to go back and listen to that. But but the idea here is like this is just one example of a, of a, of a supernatural um, – mode of, of viewing the world or, or a religious state of mind that involves a system of of imagining the seat of consciousness exiting the body. Yeah. Now, even if you have some success with this experiment, if you can do it, if you can move the place where you're thinking outside your head, we are certainly not trying to suggest, or at least I'm not, I think you'll be on the same page here, Robert. We're not trying to suggest that anything is actually moving or that thought takes place outside the body or the existence of an immaterial soul or mm -hmm. anything like that. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that information processing is performed by the nervous system, yes. primarily the brain, mm -hmm. and your brain isn't leaving your head. So whatever the organ is in the body that's generating the experience of consciousness does seem to be stuck in your skull. But today we wanted to explore this odd feature of human consciousness that it sometimes feels like it has the subjective experience of a place, of a sort of self and an identity, even though it's this immaterial concept. It's an experience we know created by a material brain. But uh, but why is it that you might be able to feel like you can move your seat of thought around to different locations? Um and if you had – like if you were living in ancient times mm -hmm. and all you had to go on was your own subjective reflection, where would you believe your mind was? Yeah, because I believe we, we, we take it for granted with our, with our modern scientific understanding of the human nervous system and, and the brain. Like most of the time I don't even really think about where I'm thinking from. Mm -hmm. Though I do find myself at times falling into the idea that I'm if I'm feeling like particular love or warmth – uh, that this is somehow emanating from my heart, not in a rational sense, mm -hmm. but in kind of a literary romantic sense, you know? Uh, this is a kind of crazy thing to suggest, but I've sometimes wondered if the idea of the heart as the seat of emotion and emotional warmth and connection is something that is derivative from the cultural institution of hugging hmm. in that when you embrace someone, you bring them into your torso, like your chest area, uh -huh. and you, you close the distance between chests, essentially, creating this sense that you're bringing hearts together. Huh. Uh, I, I've, I've wondered if it's actually backwards like that, that like the hugging leads to the belief that the heart is the seat of emotional connection. And maybe knowing what we know about the brain, that's where we get these scenes in movies where like two very manly individuals will like one will grab the other by the head and they'll kind of like do this slight headbutt and uh -huh. hold their foreheads to each other. Yeah. So, you know, they're like having this this manly bond of minds. Oh, it's not just it's not just men. Forehead hugging is like a kind of cool thing. I remember there's a scene in Mad Max Fury Road in there where oh, yeah? like Furiosa and, and Max sort of put their heads together for a minute. It's sweet. Huh. OK, well, well, we'll think about that as we proceed here. So in terms of thinking about like how ancient people thought about the seat of consciousness, uh, we, we have to begin with the ancient Egyptians. And I, just to clarify, we're not going to do an exhaustive study of, of ancient cultures and how they thought about the, the, the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the, we're going to go through a few just uh, quick examples. Well, the ancient Egyptians are a good one to feature because they had lots of thoughts on the mind. Oh, yes. And, the, and ultimately the soul. For, for them, the human soul wasn't so much a single entity, but a composite. Right. So you had 
you had uh, Ba, the human-headed bird, combined with Ka, the life force, Ku, the spiritual intelligence, Sikkim, the power, uh, Kahibit, uh, the shadow, and Ren, which was your name. Uh, and as many of you might know or remember from our episode on the Egyptian mummy, while other organs were removed and placed in uh, canopic jars for use in the afterlife, the brain was removed and discarded. Only the heart was left in the body as this was the seat of the mind. Uh, and in this, they were cardiocentrics. The mm-hmm. heart is the center. The, uh, and, and they also believed that the heart would be ev- eventually be weighed on a scale against the headdress of Mott, the goddess of truth. Yeah, I love this. This story about the afterlife where you're uh, a part of your soul, one of these aspects, uh, the sort of like heart mind thing gets weighed on the scale against I think it's like an image of a feather usually or mm-hmm. something and if you're you're too heavy if you're too heavy with sin or with burdens whatever the conception they had was that weighed down this part of your soul you'd get eaten by this hybrid monster that's part hippopotamus and part crocodile <laughs> isn't that great I love it yeah yeah e- Egyptian uh, cosmology is just fabulous now Let's turn to another ancient uh, uh, civilization that uh, that did a lot of thinking, not just about the the state of the mind, but just in general. Mm-hmm. And that would be, of course, the the ancient Greeks. Right. The Greeks thought a great deal about the seat of consciousness between the sixth century uh, BCE and the second century CE. And uh, we could essentially spend an entire hour discussing the various models proposed by the great minds in those eight centuries, uh, but. Just to boil it down, I'm going to refer to a 2007 paper, Soul, Mind, Brain, Greek Philosophy and the Birth of Neuroscience by uh, authors um, Krivolato and Ribadi. And they boiled uh, down Greek perceptions of the brain to the following. So under Alcamion in the uh, 5th century BCE, there's this idea that, uh, uh, that the brain is the seat of sensation and understanding. And then under Hippocrates around 400 BCE, uh, the, the the mind is the interpreter of things. The brain is the interpreter of things, the messenger of understanding. Um, and then under Plato, 427 through 347 BCE, uh, the brain is the seat of the rational soul. Mm-hmm. Under Aristotle, 384 through 322 uh, BCE, uh, the brain is um, the the cooling agent of body heat. <laughs> okay. Under uh, Herophilus, uh, 325 through 280 BCE, uh, it commands the center of the body. And uh, under Galen, about uh, 129 to 215 CE, it's uh, the seat of hegemonicon. And this is the this is the idea that the, the, so the, the brain is the hegemonicon, the ruling principle of the body, the the regent that of the body. That is a great word, hegemonicon. I know it needs to. That's that's a band name right there for sure. Uh huh. So we're talking Galen uh, or Galen of uh, Pergamon again. 129 to 216, uh, his lifespan. Central to his interpretation of the human nervous system is this idea of the hegemonicon. Now, the term itself was stoic, uh, but Galen firmly believed in the brain's central role, which was in sharp contrast to the stoics' largely cardiocentric views. So, so the stoic philosophers would be more like the Egyptians that saw the heart as playing right. some role in, in powering the mind and thought. Yeah, they they believe that the heart, that's where you found the human soul, the intellect, uh, and in the, uh, the the pneuma around the heart. And in this, the, the micro world reflects the, the macro world. So they believe, you know, that here's, here's the heart as the sun of human life, and thus it was regarded as, as the seat of the logos, the universal intelligence. And they offered various bits of rhetorical argument in support of this, as well as the argument that the voice clearly rises from the heart via the throat. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, but Galen uh, was not having it. You know, th- with lots of ideas like that, I'm always, like they're funny in retrospect, but it must have seemed incredibly clever at the time to say, yeah, yeah obviously you think with something down in your chest instead of in your brain. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why would speech come from down there if it's yeah. coming from the part of you that's thinking? It has a it, it would be very circuitous for information to be going from the head down there and then coming out as speech. Yeah. To, understanding what they knew and did not know at the time, it has a certain truthiness to it. Right. Yeah. So again, Galen was was not having any of this, and uh, and he may have engaged in the first uh, experiment to uh, to to produce evidence that the brain controls behavior and thought. 
So he offered up rigorous and objective anatomical demonstrations, such as, uh, such as noting the disappearance of voice in a pig after an incision of the uh, inferior laryngeal nerves. And he also stressed that the heart produced neither sensation nor modification of consciousness when touched. Hmm. So he was he was oh, all about God. let's get down. Yeah. <laughs> Though I would think it would produce some kind of effect when touched. Yeah, but but the, the take home here is that Galen listened to these ideas and he said, well, let's put them to the test. Yeah, let's actually conduct experiments and uh, and and see if if there is any truth to this idea that the heart is uh, is the seat of consciousness. And he he concluded that it was not. Now, one thing that we could look at and separate here is is back to the classical hard problem of consciousness, the one you're going to encounter every time, which is that like if you're doing experiments on animals or something mm-hmm. like that, you can never get inside the animal and really know whether you're affecting its consciousness or not. You can just look at its behavior. Right. Um, you can even really say that ultimately you'd have the same problem with other human beings, except human beings can at least tell you they can claim to experience consciousness or not. Um, But yeah, so we we are dealing with these sort of related but different concepts. On one hand, there is activity of the nervous system, as in the central command of the body that produces behavior. Uh, And then the other thing is the subjective experience of being. We assume those things are linked because when you know we can think about our behavior and that experience is subjective but uh but yeah you could imagine that maybe animals are behaving as automata they have behavior and even apparently some kind of information processing thought but it doesn't feel like anything to be them yeah so i guess those are concepts to to sort of keep separate in the mind, but throughout the history of investigating the seat of consciousness, we're always going back into blurring them, aren't we? Yeah. You sort of can't help but do it. Yeah, and now I like that you mentioned the objective and the, the subjective here because yeah. I, to get back to this idea that that most of us don't have any problem thinking about the, the, the brain as the, the, the seat of the mind. Yeah. In this, the subjective and the objective tend to line up for most people. Like I haven't seen a cardiocentric argument Made by even the most like the 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 most out there fundamentalist uh, adherent to a faith. Uh-huh. You know, I, I can't think of an example offhand where someone's saying, "Look, dinosaurs are fake. The world is three hundred years old, and you think with your heart, man." <laughs> like, no, nobody's making that argument. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of lucky to, if you will, to 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 largely live in a world where the subjective and the objective line up. Yeah, and I I mean to another extent I kind of wonder um how to put this. Like I I sort of wonder how you could think your mind was powered by your heart. Now, I know that's just my chauvinism as a as a, you know, brain-centric thinker knowing mm-hmm. what I know and uh, having the cultural beliefs that I do, but I also have thoughts like um a, a strong blow to the head does seem to temporarily impair your consciousness to some extent. Like you lose lucidity. Mm-hmm. You are sort of partially removed from the world and your thinking, even your subjective experience of thinking seems to kind of slow down and grind its gears a little bit. Uh-huh. This doesn't really seem to happen when somebody hits you in the body or at least not to the same extent. Or I don't know, maybe you wouldn't agree. But – just that kind of thing alone would seem to suggest that people should get the idea that thinking and the subjective experience of being has something to do with what's in the skull. Well, certainly a sword of the heart will will stop you. Well, that's certainly true, yeah. And, and in pro wrestling, you have the heart punch, which uh, for a while in many territories was banned because you would uh, – you would, you'd like – you take the the individual's arm and like fold it behind them, thus exposing the, the rib oh. uh, area, and then there would be like a very calculated punch to the heart, and you would just go out uh, like a light. So maybe uh, you know I wouldn't put uh, cardiocentrism, uh, you know, uh, ab, uh, you know, out of the framework of uh, professional wrestling kayfabe. Mm-hmm. It seems like it could it could work <laughs> in that context. Well, but I mean, uh, do you do you generally agree or not that like that? <laughs> Something does feel very natural about thinking about thinking being in the head. Well, yeah, I, I largely agree because I, I can – it's it's hard to imagine a situation where you'd have, have uh, you know, not only intellectuals but like working people and soldiers engaging in activities that would result in, in, a, in, in cranial injuries mm-hmm. that they wouldn't 
you know, be privy to this connection. Right. But then again, I guess maybe uh, in defense of the idea, maybe you could think about it more like it's just an injury to things like the eyes Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You know, if we're we're primarily visually oriented in the world, if you if you hit the part of my body that has the eyes on it, maybe you could explain a loss of lucidity through that somehow. Yeah. Now, this this leads uh, to our next example. We're going to we're going to roll through here. Uh, a, a, a spiritual, supernatural uh, idea, and that is of the the seven chakras. Now, this is something I feel a little embarrassed that I think I should know about. I've always heard of chakras, but I really know almost nothing about them. So, yeah. g- give me the cra- okay. the beginner's crash course, Robert. What what's the deal with the chakras? I know there are multiple chakras in the body. Yeah, the, the, this is another one of those topics that. If we wanted to, we could explore just ad nauseum. Uh, it shows up in Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and of course your your local neighborhood yoga uh, studio, uh-huh. and uh, or your local neighborhood uh, Tool album cover. I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, the the work <laughs> of Alex Gray. It, it, it features into a lot of um, new age belief systems as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is something I've always I've always been fascinated by the the metaphysics of chakras, uh, their various artistic representations. And uh, and when I adjust to the my own perceptive lenses to the the worldview in, of these uh, of these models, uh, I can certainly say that I, I believe in them and find the model useful for meditation and yoga. Like when you put on the spiritual glasses, this makes good yeah, sense to yeah, you. Yeah, when I check and do a yoga class, I can engage in this this model of thinking. So chakras or wheels in Sanskrit are concepts of the the subtle spiritual body, the idea that you have energy points positioned down the body from the top of your skull to the base of your spine, root root chakra to crown chakra. So it would go root, uh, sacral, navel, heart, your third eye, and then the crown. Whoa. Yeah. Now, so these all go up sort of the center of your body, right? Like there's a line going up your spine from uh, in the middle from yes. fr- sort of from your butt to your forehead. Yes. And and I've seen it argued that that animals with tails would have more chakras, but and maybe that's why <laughs> they're more, uh, you know, they're chill. That's why we turn to our pets for a little slice of zen. My pet is not chill. Oh yeah? Oh, I, well not always. Okay, but sometimes at least he lives in the moment, right? Yeah. That's true. That's the yeah. great thing about pets is they are very much in the moment. They don't care about past or future. They, they don't have too much trouble with losing the self. <laughs> well, uh, with each chakra, each one is tied to different organs, uh, different aspects of personality and human behavior. Uh, there's a whole system built up around this. Uh, the numbers vary, but, but seven is pretty much the norm. And it's a rather, rather different take than the, the two previous views, uh, the, the idea that it's ba- that consciousness and everything that we are is based on either the heart or the mind, because the energy of being flows through these points, and it can be focused in certain chakras. So, for instance, there's a, an exercise for opening a particular chakra, concentrating it, even breathing into or through one's third eye. And this is an interesting experience, because in which I've I've engaged in because naturally you know that you're not actually breathing through a non-existent aperture in your skull but <laughs> if you close your eyes and you focus on the concept you can you can kind of feel it you can imagine yourself as this ball of energy moving up and down your body you can imagine and even feel your center of being pooled into different parts of your anatomy i mean Part of me wants to ask, like, why is it that we can do that? But that sort of goes back to the question we started with at the beginning. To the extent that some people can move the location of their consciousness around in in this at least subjective sense, they can make it feel like they're thinking from outside their body. Why can they do that? Like, well, why why is that a feature of the human mind? Well, I think a lot of it comes back to this whole uh, the whole mind body connection thing, yeah. and this this tendency, especially. You know, you could say we have a definite advantage in modern uh, civilizations of of knowing intrinsically that we think with our mind, but we also fall into that. You mean think with the brain? Yes, that, yes. Yeah. My, that, that we think with a we think with a mind that's positioned in the brain, uh-huh. we th- and ultimately that we think with the brain. But uh, in doing this, we often fall into this model of the rider on a horse, where right. the rider is the brain and the horse is the rest of the body. When really. There, we're connected. Really, we're a centaur. So the I, you know, study after study continues to you know to, to point out. Oh, well, your 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 digestion has a has a role to play in uh, in in what you're thinking and how you think and how your mind works. This is something I wanted to get into later in the episode. Maybe I'll save part of it. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there there is this idea of embodied cognition. Yeah, which is one subset of the discipline of extended cognition, and this is just sort of. 
uh, ways of thinking about all the different ways that the human mind is really based in more than just the brain. Not not to say that the brain is not the primary organ doing the information processing, but that parts of information processing and body processes that inform information processing are offloaded to other things. For example, counting on your fingers, you are literally yeah. using your hand for part of the information processing right there. Yeah. And is no matter how much we think of ourselves as a brain, mm-hmm. we are not just a brain. We are a body. Like like who are you? You are your body. Right. So uh I, I think that's one reason that the chakra model is is interesting and, and 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 why we can pour ourselves into it so easily. But I also like how this model lines up with the experience of of multiple selves and the ebb and flow of identity and emotion. The idea that, you know, the person you are first thing in the morning's not necessarily the exact same version of you right before you go to bed. The person there's the person yesterday that you were yesterday versus the person you are today. And I'm not I'm not using this as like a real hippy dippy model of of <laughs> your multiple people, man, and you've been multiple people throughout your lives. No, it's just the exact manifestation of who you are is going to vary. Sometimes you're going to be angry. Sometimes you're going to be sad. Sometimes you're going to be a more um, you're going to more me- be more mentally engaged. Other times you're, you're going to be more heartfelt. Yeah, I don't think that's hippy dippy. I mean, I think. We've got two things in conflict, which is that um, on one hand, we feel a strong sense of the uh, the unity of our experience. Mm-hmm. We feel like I am the same person I was yesterday. Like um, here's one example. If I told you like, OK, uh, tonight when you go to bed, your conscious experience will forever cease. Essentially, you will die okay. in your experience. But tomorrow morning, your body will wake up and continue doing that thing. And somebody, some other consciousness will inhabit your brain. That Maybe the, that consciousness is identical to yours, except you, yours just ends. Okay. Well, people don't like that idea. <laughs> I mean, that would not be very enticing to most people. But then again, how can you prove that's not already what happens? Yeah, we have this like it, there there is no way in which you could know that you don't in fact die every night when you go to sleep and wake up with a new consciousness full of the old consciousness's memories and that's sort of the the bizarre fleeting nature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's experienced as an endless succession of moments and yet we have this strong sense that it's unified throughout our lives. Yeah, I mean that's the the kind of the trap of belief in a soul or or even even outside of thinking like specifically of a soul, just the thinking of a mind state mm-hmm. that it's this thing that could be taken off, put on a shelf, restored, saved, backed up, put in a new body, etc. uh and instead it's this uh it's this string. It's this it's the it's a timeline. Yeah. Uh, just as a weird little side note, I, I also think that thinking like that, though it sounds kind of weird to people, this idea that, uh, you know, every, every moment your consciousness sort of dies and becomes something new, mm-hmm. constantly rising from the ashes every time it goes down a new train of thought. That could sound kind of weird and depressing, but I think you could also think about it the other way. That can be a kind of exciting, liberating thought uh, that I think maybe could even help people, you know, people who have fear of death and stuff like that. Just try, try, try getting around that by thinking about your whole experience is a series of moments that perish every second. Yeah. Death's not something you're going to have to do. It's some future schmuck version of you that's going to have to do that. So, you know, chill out, right? (laughs) Likewise, quit, quit worrying about, you know, some transgression you made, uh, you know, several years ago, because mm-hmm. that that version of you is gone. This is a different you, moment to moment. It's all open for interpretation, is what I'm saying. It was the heat of the moment. Yeah. All right, we should probably take a break at this point. Okay. And then when we come back, we will we will we will leave the realm of uh, ancient Egyptians and chakras and uh, and cardiocentric um, uh, Stoics, and we'll get into some neuroscience. Okay. All right, we're back. So note that there are two different things you could really be talking about when you talk about the location of consciousness, right? One is what we were doing in that experiment at the beginning, the subjective sensation of the location of consciousness. Some people might be able to do uh, some kind of meditative exercise. They could be a very skilled meditator and place their subjective experience of consciousness in somebody else's head. I could think that I'm thinking from Robert's brain. That would not mean that 
Robert's brain is what's generating that sensation, obviously. So the location that really and objectively physically generates consciousness is a different question that where, than where it feels like you're thinking from. Um, and as uh, as always with our discussions of human consciousness, we got to stress again: there's no final answer regarding what's true. We right. you know we don't know there, there's no final insight as to the objective nature of it. Certainly not yet, and there there may never be. We don't really know. Uh, but humans have been banging on this nutshell for a long time, trying to crack it, and there have been some interesting discoveries, right? Oh yeah. So the human brain contains about hundred billion neurons. And neuroscientists uh, have a general understanding of how that network of neurons computes information. But how and where does this computation tr- computation transform into awareness, into sentience, into the, the human condition? Uh, and this is the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Right. One way of putting this might be you could easily explain – how organisms with our behaviors would, mm-hmm. you know, would evolve. But why does it feel like something to be one of those organisms? Yeah. Why aren't they just automata with, uh, with unfeeling intelligence performing these behaviors in a universe where there's nothing like to be anything? Yeah. So for starters, let's take a moment and refer back to, to Galen. And we'll go ahead and raise his hand in victory over the cardiocentric Stoics. No. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. The brain is the seat of uh, cognition, or rather, it's certainly the uh, the seating section uh, for the concert, right? Right. But, We've already discussed a couple of the interesting qualifiers on that. But yes. I, I think we can say without blushing too much that the brain is where information processing primarily happens. Right. But if this is the, the seating section in the stadium what are the exact seats what does <laughs> what does consciousness look like uh, from where does it arise neurologically speaking uh-huh well obviously something that we haven't dealt with much in this episode except to, to sort of ignore it maybe we will just continue this tradition is that for a lot of human history people have had some version of what's known as dualism, mm-hmm. Cartesian dualism, the idea that the mind is a thing separate from the body, maybe a thing that controls the body, that it is in some sense immaterial, as in has no physical embodiment whatsoever. Or uh, or sometimes I think in the ancient world it was thought of not necessarily as immaterial, but certainly not as a solid object you could, you know, extract with a scalpel or something. It was maybe more like a pneuma or a breath, some kind of gaseous thing. So this concept that we, we talked about earlier, the Scientology concept of a thetan, mm-hmm. like that would be a dualist concept, right? Because it is a, a, a thing outside of yourself. Yeah, I guess so, though I wonder in that case, is it, uh, is the Thetan considered material or immaterial? I don't actually know the answer I, there. I think based on what I was looking at earlier, I think it would be considered immaterial, because I think mm. there's, uh, I think L. Ron Hubbard had some, uh, some writings where he's talking about it, about it, you know, not having mass, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but I am no expert on <laughs> Scientology, uh, on, on the details, the theology of Scientology. Now, obviously, a lot of people are still very committed to dualism today for various, you know, faith reasons mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and that's cool. But I, I'm not aware of any good scientific evidence that has been produced in favor of dualism. It seems like pretty much everything goes the opposite way. So I don't think we should really consider that there's scientific grounding for the idea that thinking happens outside the brain in some other place. Right. Yeah, and we're forced to try and figure out the connection, the differences between how brain activity seems to work and how we actually experience consciousness, right? Right. Now, for my own part, I, I've, I've tended to favor the, uh, the epi-feminologist viewpoint of Thomas Huxley. So he was a dualist, believing in the, that the, the mind and the brain are not identical, but he also believed that the mind was an unnecessary byproduct of the, of the brain, a sort of cognitive shadow. Yeah. And I tend to like that. That view of it. Now, some people react to epiphenomenalism with real rancor. Some people are deeply offended by the idea that the mind doesn't actually do anything, that it's just an unnecessary byproduct of the brain. Yeah, or a, an, an accident, a happy accident or a sad accident, depending yeah. on what your mood happens to be. Uh, uh, I I think you could also look at that as a very beautiful thing to believe. I yeah, know, that's a kind of. That, like, I mean, that's the way I tend to interpret. Like, wow, like this shadow puppet on the wall is amazing. Yeah, it's not that you know the fact that it's it's accidental. It's it's caused by this just machinery moving to to make this uh, this ape body do its thing. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I don't think that that takes away from the miracle of it all at all. 
of course, the opposite of that view would be the idea that in some sense it would be hard to understand exactly what this is, but that doesn't mean it's wrong, uh, that in some sense consciousness is adaptive, mm-hmm. that, that consciousness plays some kind of role in the survival of the organism. It happens for a reason. But in general, we, we struggle to comprehend the, the psycho-physical nexus between our immaterial consciousness or mind and the physical lump of brain in our head. Right. And to be clear, consciousness does not make its nest in any one portion of the brain. Well, some people might argue with that, but I think you're right. Okay, well, more on that argument in just a second. But, okay, this idea that there's no center of the brain, no brain of the brain where everything is uh, aggregated. Uh-huh. Uh, this mirrors what we know about memory, right? We, uh-huh. have, we, we don't just have memory, like this, this one little uh, you know, zip drive in our head. We have multiple systems, multiple regions of the brain. Uh, the brain can suffer damage in one area, and an entire system of memory can go offline, but the brain lives on. By, by the, the, the you live on uh, by virtue of other routes of memory. I kind of like the way I think in one episode in the past, I can't remember which one it was. We talked about the metaphor of the brain as almost like an office full of workers mm-hmm. where there are some people who maybe stop showing up to work and other office workers may be able to fill in for them, sort of pitch in and cover the bases. Now, some people may be more crucial than others. Like if your operations manager who keeps the power on doesn't show up, uh, then you might be in real trouble. But other people might not show up and you can you can find ways to get around it. Yeah. Jim's not here. Who's going to make the coffee? Well, maybe Jane can do it. The coffee might not be as good, but there will still be a caffeinated beverage. Exactly. Now, a lot of what we understand is, as consciousness seems to boil down to awareness and integration of information. Yeah, this is often a model that's put forward. It's it's this idea of, um, it, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to define awareness, but that's really hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, because, again, we're, we're getting to this, this situation where we're trying to – Explain away the magic of the of the human experience, yeah. and uh, and take it apart into uh, functional um, uh, aspects of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, research into the effects of anesthesia on the brain suggests uh, that integration of information across the brain. This might be our best gauge of consciousness, and some argue that this might be consciousness, that what we experience, again, is the shadow cast by this integration. So, in other words, that if this is happening, consciousness wouldn't necessarily be rooted in one particular place in the brain, if we're still talking about Mm -hmm. the location of consciousness, but it's more like a phenomenon arising when the brain is talking to itself across many different regions. Yes, yeah. Well, that does sort of tie into something I do want to get to in a second about a a proposed localization. Okay. Now, one one, uh, interpretation of this that I really like, uh, this comes down to uh, a a book by uh, uh, neuroscientist Michael Graziano titled Consciousness in the Social Brain. And uh, he breaks it down more or less to this. This is a this is the, the, the elevator version of this. The, the, this is the crash course version. Okay. He Take says, me up to the 13th floor. All right. Up to the 13th floor. Here we go. Animal nervous systems evolve to process incoming data more efficiently. But a lot of data streams in. Right. So the brain has to sort it all out and apply deeper processing to what really matters. Oh, this is – yeah, we all know this experience because there's a ton of stuff in your field of vision right now that mm-hmm. you a- absolutely are not noticing. You see way more than you really see. Yeah. For another great example is if you're at a party and you can focus in on either the conversation you're having or you can sort of depart from the conversation you're locked into and – and fully engage uh, and listen to another conversation that's right. more interesting. Yeah, you can keep going like, yeah, uh-huh, well, really what you're doing is eavesdropping. Exactly. So, But we see some more things in insects. We see it in our ability, again, to see, yet not see, to hear, yet not hear, the less important bits of sense data in our surrounding. And so this focus, the attention or the control of attention, uh, Graziano argues, is key to our experience of consciousness. Our brains process all of this sense data as well as our knowledge of self in the world. The self we're aware of is like a game piece on a table. Consciousness then is just information. Hmm. That's his argument anyway. I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. But as with a lot of these explanations of consciousness, it's hard to feel it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that's an argument against it. I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
a lot of times when people try to say, here's how you explain uh, how consciousness is generated by the brain, however coherent the explanation might be, it's hard to make it feel like, oh, yeah, that feels right. That's what my consciousness is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, how does it happen? Like, where does mm-hmm. it come from? You, you might be able to explain it as attention. Uh, but yet again, why is this not some kind of automated, non-subjective experience? Yeah, anytime we actually try to see ourselves in these uh, these explanations of consciousness, they, mm-hmm. they almost always fall flat. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned a minute ago that there actually have been multiple attempts to locate the seat of consciousness in in one brain subsystem or brain region. Uh, you know, the, the place where you'd see the certain brain activity light up on the fMRI mm-hmm. or whatever. And one example is that I don't know if you remember this. There was a lot of hubbub back in 2014 about a brain region known as the claustrum, or I guess the claustra, because there are two of them, Mm -hmm. and how research, uh, which was new at the time, might implicate it as the single region responsible for generating the experience of consciousness. I believe Francis Crick, who worked on, uh, you know, the uh, DNA, was involved in investigating the idea that the claustrum played a major role or was the seat of consciousness. So the claustrum is a, it's a small little sheet of neurons underneath the neocortex, the all-important neocortex. Mm-hmm. And it's very thin. It's uh, completely surrounded by what's known as white matter, this connective tissue that's said to sort of wire different brain regions together. And there are two of them in your brain, as I said, these claustra. They're, they're positioned sort of anterior center location around around where the temples are on your head. Mm-hmm. And the, clo- the claustrum has been referred to as this, quote, neuronal super hub, as a sort of central exchange where information from all other the all, all over the brain travels to and from. So it's got information coming in and out from all over the place. And that makes it kind of interesting if we're going with the hypothesis you talked about earlier that uh, that uh, the experience of consciousness is the integration of the activity of multiple brain regions, right? That's mm-hmm. putting all this information together. Then there have been some really interesting case studies, certainly not definitive, but things that make people in consciousness studies prick up their ears. Uh, one of them, for example, is this case of a woman who repeatedly lost conscious experience or reported doing so when this region of her brain was electrically stimulated. But it was not the same kind of losing consciousness where usually when we say lose consciousness, it means like go to sleep, Mm -hmm. you know, or something like that. You sort of close your eyes and you lose all you stop acting. You just kind of fall over. And all that really continues is like breathing and heartbeat and digestion and stuff. This lady was not like that. She could According to uh, uh, to the reports about this, she could continue very basic behaviors for a few seconds after the point where she claimed her conscious experience stopped. Hmm. So if she was like doing simple movements or repeating a word, just very simple things like that, they could do this stimulation. Her memory of being conscious goes away, and yet her body continues doing the thing for a brief period of time. Oh, wow. And so I'm assuming they're doing this with electromagnetic stimulation or some other similar. Uh, I think it was, I think it was electrode stimulation. Okay, yeah. Um, this is, this is scary if you start thinking about the, the possible, uh, implications of this in the same way that they're, you know, you have the, the alleged God helmet. What if you had the zombie helmet where <laughs> you just, you put it on and then your consciousness is out and you're just, uh, you yeah. just go about about like you know cleaning uh, an apartment, right? You act without awareness. Of course, yeah. would you really mind? Well, that's that's <laughs> you a, might that's mind. A good question. You might mind missing that time later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I don't know what to make about that. I I'm a little skeptical about the idea that you'd ever be able to pin consciousness on one particular part of the brain. But then again, I'm I'm not a neuroscientist. I mean, there there might be something. To that, uh, I, I'm also sympathetic to the ideas that that consciousness is not one unitary thing, but is in fact assembled out of different experiential uh, components. Mm-hmm. This is also a controversial idea. It's but by no means you know widely accepted. A lot of people don't like that idea at all. But I think this might be a good place to to come back to this idea of extended cognition. You know that we mentioned earlier with the idea of. Uh, uh, of embodied cognition. So if you do something extremely simple, like write down a note, 
on a piece of paper to help you remember something. Say you write down, you know, uh, need need to buy 500 golf balls at Target. <laughs> yeah. In what sense is that piece of paper and pencil not a part of your cognition, mm-hmm. not a part of your information processing? It's only in the sense that you would make a perhaps arbitrary rule that says only stuff that happens inside the brain counts as cognition. But there are tons of external tools and phenomena that aid in our cognition from calculators to hand gestures and even other people. You can use other people's cognition to supplement your own. Yeah. And that would be sort of like a computer adding on an extra processing core. In what sense is that not part of the information processing that's happening? Uh, and this is the main idea behind the concept of extended cognition. The brain is obviously the primary organ used in thinking, but thinking includes the activity of tons of external things, hands, pen and paper, computers, other people. And with that in mind, uh, I, I don't want to take a, take this in a spooky direction, but could we not begin to see how extended cognition could imply a, a sort of uh, willingness for the brain to engage in extended consciousness? If the subjective experience of the world is generated by information processing and information processing involves external activity, hands, pen and paper, other people, could part of the experience of consciousness be thought of as generated by something external to the brain? Uh, I, I do want to be clear here again, not not proposing anything supernatural or mm-hmm. ghostly about that, uh, just trying to introduce some more weirdness into this idea about where the mind resides yeah, because if you're doing math on your fingers, <laughs> then is there is there is there mind all over your fingers? Is cognition all over your your hands? I don't know that that might be a nonsensical idea, but mm-hmm. I do think it's at least worth contemplating. At least maybe long enough to dismiss. I'm not sure. Hmm. All right, we should probably take one more break at this point. But when we come back, uh, we'll discuss this topic a little bit more, and we'll even get into a little bit of Daniel Dennett. All right, we're back. Okay, one last thing I wanted to talk about in this episode, uh, about uh, asking the question, where is my mind? And it's a short story by the philosopher Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett's a philosopher we've talked about on the show before. I I always think he's a really interesting dude. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's written a lot about philosophy of mind. He's trying to – he wrote a book in the 90s called Consciousness Explained where he tried to to outline a theory about – how consciousness was generated from the ground up by these different cognitive processes, sort of uh, having additive properties adding up to consciousness and how things – he had the idea that it, consciousness is not either – just an either or, like it's there or it's not. He has this idea that things can be sort of conscious. There can be varying degrees of consciousness and uh, and that we represent some level of consciousness that is common to human animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because certainly – when you start looking at, at other animal specimens, you look at, say, dolphins, mm-hmm. um, various primates, uh, or, or another example is uh, is octopi. Yeah. You start – you have to ask yourself, well, it, to what extent do we dare take the human model of cognition yeah. and say, all right, octopus, do this. Make this shape mm-hmm. with your with, with your brain. Uh, that's, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. But then they, even if we get the octopus to do it, it's uh, it's still hard to know what's going on inside the octopus's oh, yeah. experience. I mean, I probably assume that other animals are having some sort of experience. You can never really know for sure. It would just seem by analogy that they are to some extent probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's hard to know. But anyway, I want to get into this. So Daniel Dennett's this philosopher, but years ago he wrote a sci-fi short story. And this was to uh, get into some of his weird ideas about the mind. So Dennett's main character in the story is a fictionalized version of himself who is delivering a lecture to an auditorium full of students and colleagues. Here's the setup. He says, several years ago, he was recruited by the government to undergo a dangerous mission. And what it was was that the Department of Defense had developed a new type of weapon, which was an underground tunneling nuclear warhead. It sounds like a great centerpiece for a 90s movie, right? Like that has Nicolas Cage in it. Maybe... Yeah, Nicolas Cage. I think yeah, that, I think it's that, the right choice. Yeah. Always the right choice. Uh, it's like the sequel to Con Air. <laughs> they get him to come in there. It, con Con Drill. Um, 
And it's known as the Supersonic Tunneling Underground Device, or STUD. All right. Well, there's your movie title right there. Exactly. So it was designed to tunnel through the core of the Earth and be capable of delivering a nuclear payload to weapons installations on the other side of the globe. But it became stuck about a mile beneath Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh oh. <laughs> so the government wants Dennett to go disarm the device, and unfortunately, the d- the device is known to emit a type of radiation that is considered harmless to the body, but fatal to brain cells. Uh, but the government has a solution. They want to remove Dennett's brain from his body and store it in a jar full of liquid in a lab in Houston, allowing it to control his body remotely. Via a radio link. Oh, this is great. Now, so you think, wait a minute, that's crazy. Not really, they explain, because the body is already connected to the brain through a series of nerves. For all practical purposes, you can think of these as wires of varying lengths. So what if you just imagine making the wires a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer still, and then eventually just skipping the wires altogether and substituting wireless radio waves uh, that can do the same types of energy and information transmission that the nerves do, uh, just like the communication between your computer and your Wi-Fi router. See, this this blows another hole in the uh, the, the, the RoboCop two uh, scenario, uh-huh. where you had uh, Tom Noonan's brain put into <laughs> this uh, this robotic uh, war machine, yeah, and then uh, RoboCop is able to defeat RoboCop two by reaching in, pulling his brain out of the machine and, and crashing it on the, smashing it on the ground. Yeah. Whoops. Why did, why did, because his brain was just connected by, via wires to the rest of the robot. It could have been in a vault somewhere yeah. protected. Why not? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Dennett says, well, uh, yes, I'm very curious about the mind and the brain, so I will undergo the procedure. So he wakes up from surgery and everything feels basically normal, as if nothing has changed. Except he has some antennas poking out of his head, but otherwise he feels like he is him. But then he goes to view his brain. There it is. He sees it sitting in a vat full of – he describes what looks like root beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and – or wait. Does he say ginger ale or root beer? I can't remember. It's sitting in something <laughs> that looks like a delicious sugary Maybe beverage. it's ginger beer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and it's attached to a bunch of electrodes and antennas. But then he is struck with a really odd thought. Why does he think here I am looking at my own brain instead of there's my body looking at me? Huh. After all, the brain is the thing doing the thinking. He's looking at the thing that is thinking right now. It's the organ responsible for generating the idea of the self, maintaining it through every environmental variation. And yet he cannot shake the idea that he is still in some sense in his body. Uh, and in a sense, he is because he's looking out through eyes that are attached to his body. But to answer the question, where am I? He subjectively feels that he is in his head, but consciously knows that he is in the jar. Now, for somebody who doesn't usually write science fiction, I think this is a really good setup for a story. Yeah, I'm digging it. I can I can imagine it at least as an Outer Limits episode. <laughs> Now, can you only imagine how it would end if it were a Twilight Zone episode? Yeah. Uh, okay, so he's trying to sort out his feelings, and Dennett decides to rename the two objects. So he names his body Hamlet, okay. and he names his brain Yorick. Okay. Good choices. If Dennett is not strictly in Hamlet, and he's not strictly in Yorick, where is he? Where Where is the self that he's thinking from? Uh, and maybe, maybe he's wherever his point of view is. He goes through a bunch of different options here. Uh, but then he also discovers there's a switch he can flip to turn off the antennas on his brain and sever the connection between his brain and body. Flipping the switch causes him to become groggy and collapse and somebody else has got to flip it back on for him. Now, eventually, he's got to go face down the underground nuke. So controlling his body via a radio link, just like before, Dennett goes down into the tunnel to disarm the stud. But unfortunately, while down there, one by one, his radio links begin to fail. So first he loses his hearing, then he loses control of his speech, then of various motor functions eventually goes blind and loses all connection to his body. At this moment, he realizes something very weird has happened. Um, His body has collapsed in the tunnel with nothing to control it. And he has become a disembodied mind, no body, only a brain. 
And the odd thing is that whereas before his intuition told them told him he was in his body, even though he knew otherwise, now he asks the question, where am I? And his intuition tells him that he's in a jar in a lab in Houston. It's only by like subtraction mm -hmm. of the rest of what's available that he starts to put himself in the brain. Uh, and, and this makes me wonder, uh, just as a side, we, we would usually assume that some version of this is possible, but should we? Like, could you really think at all if your mind was confined to a total void and you had no input or output or any kind, uh, any kind of anything whatsoever between your brain and the outside world? I, I wonder if that would actually preclude thinking somehow. Well, you know, Lovecraft actually got into this a little bit and, oh, yeah? uh, he had a, had a short story titled The Whisperer in Darkness. And uh, there's a plot concerning uh, the Migo, these alien uh, fungal creatures from another world. And uh, they have a habit of, of removing a human's brain, putting them into a Migo brain canister so they can be uh, you know, stored away or shipped elsewhere. And you just go mad inside the canister. Well, this is something I think that's legitimate to worry about when people talk about this sci-fi uh, transhuman kind of idea of downloading your brain into a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think this is really going to happen someday. I remain highly skeptical about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, OK, let's say it is possible. I'm not sure that would be a good thing to do because, I mean, there you run the risk of putting your consciousness into a scenario where you would be uh, possibly psychologically tortured by, you know, lack of some kind of crucial input or output and – also, at the same time, unable to even kill yourself and escape it. Yeah, I mean, you could have like a virtual sense of your body, but eventually you're going to have to hire Mick Jagger to kidnap Emilio Estevez from the past so you can occupy his brain. Is this the plot of Free Jack? Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Does that have Anthony Hopkins in it? Yeah, he plays the, the, the brain in question. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, okay, so back to the story. We're, we're getting close to the end now. So he, he's been in this brain now. He's just a brain. And he goes into a dreamless sleep. He wakes up about a year later. And upon awaking in a hospital, he again finds himself having the sensation of being located in a physical body. But it's not his original one. Uh, he has the sense that his personality has been maintained, you know, that he's the same person. This thing we were talking about earlier, the, uni the unity of conscious experience over time. But he's in this new body supplied to him by the government uh, from previous circumstances unknown. Hmm. Uh of co and yet, of course, the organ doing the thinking is still in the jar in Houston, connected to his body via new radio links, just like the old one. Uh, and in keeping with his Hamlet theme, he names his new body Fortinbras. All right. Now, refresh me. I certainly remember that, of course, Hamlet's the main character. Yorick is the skull. But uh, how does Fortinbras factor into all this? Fortinbras is the character who comes in at the end of Hamlet and uh, and just sort of survey. He's the conquering oh, yes, invader yes. who comes into the castle at the end and sees the devastation and uh, sort of comments on it all. Oh, yes, yes. Gotcha. So if uh, Dennett's original body, the first body he had, Hamlet, is dead in a tunnel in a, under a huge grave marker reading stud, why Why does he still feel that he is alive but with a new body rather than feeling that he died and now some other person is being controlled by his brain? Uh, that, that seems to root the idea of the location of the self in the brain. But then Dennett in his new body Fortinbras goes to view his brain again. Once more, he tries to flip the switch to sever the connection between his brain and his body. And this time, nothing happens. He doesn't become groggy and collapse. Here he discovers he has unwittingly been the subject of a secret side project. Scientists in the lab have made a computer copy of his brain named Hubert. Ah. Now, who knows if such a thing is possible to do in reality, but let's go along with it for just a second. Running on a computer attached to radio transmitter is a piece of software that is a perfect duplicate of his brain, exactly replicating all the function and retaining all the memories. And the scientists have been, been experimenting with it to see how closely it mirrors the actions of his real brain. And so far, its behavior has been 100% identical. Furthermore, he discovers that the reason he did not experience any problems upon severing the connection between Yorick and Fortinbras is that, in fact, Fortinbras is not being controlled by Yorick, the organic brain, but by Hubert, the computer copy. 
Both Yorick and Hubert are simultaneously fed the same input from the body, and they both react to it the same way, so it does not seem to matter which one of them controls the body Fortinbras. Huh. Now where is Dennett? Um, and so th- there are some more f- wonderfully fun things that happen at the end of the story. I, I don't want to spoil the very ending of it for you, but th- that's sort of like the meat of of the philosophical questions posed. But as interesting as it is, it makes me wonder, like, can you ever really learn anything about the nature of consciousness purely through these kinds of thought experiments? You know, can can um, can just coming up with scenarios and, and sort of uh, ratiocination in the chair get you to a place of understanding the nature of consciousness that, uh, say, you wouldn't have arrived at just by having the experience of being conscious? Yeah, it's an interesting argument because on one hand, like looking at your own consciousness, like your own consciousness is kind of like this weird ledge we've built out over a canyon. Yeah. And it makes sense that maybe to perceive it, we've got to, got, got to build a new uh, a new artificial ledge over the edge of the canyon so that we can actually have the perspective to look back on the, the previous perspective. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is if we kind of have a blinder up. Uh, and in fact, uh, our future uh, guest, uh, R. Scott Baker, mm-hmm. uh, talked a lot about this blind brain theory about the brain not being able to perceive itself. Right. It, it, it's just it, it has not evolved with the tools to study consciousness. That yeah. just is not relevant to survival. So we have to have a workaround there. Yeah. We, we have to sort of build new thought structures to try and perceive what we are. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, who knows if these thought structures really provide any insights? I mean, I, I find this story really interesting and mm-hmm. a lot of the, this is the kind of thing a lot of this thought about consciousness does. I mean, you know, a lot of times they're not doing scientific experiments. Who knows if scientific experiments could give us any useful information about consciousness either? Or maybe even that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, it, it's this big, wonderful, juicy problem and you're always tempted to come back to it and think you can have some new insight about it. Uh, but in the end, every time I have one of these conversations, I'm left wondering, like, was any new ground covered or we, <laughs> did we just kind of run in circles, uh, with this question that's so enticing, but maybe never solvable? I don't know. Well, one of the great things about this this story, which is essentially a thought experiment, is yeah. one of those thought experiments that because that, it, that if, if you if you pay close enough attention and you read it and you think about it, you may reach that point where something kind of clicks and you you're suddenly viewing your own reality in a way that either you haven't before or certainly in a way that you do not view it on a regular basis. It's not your default view of your uh, subjective reality. Yeah. And and that, those moments can be magical where it takes you out. You're kind of taken out of the the mud of who you are mm-hmm. and you're able to uh, to glimpse it. It's almost like a, an well, imagined two-dimensional being pulled out into a three-dimensional world and, and trying to just get a glimpse of everything before sinking back into place. And to take it back to where we started at the beginning, this is what a lot of meditative practice yeah. is. I mean there are a lot of different ways to meditate, but one of the things people do when they meditate – is to try to get out of themselves to see themselves. Yeah, to and to to get out of you know to shut down the default mode network to to get out of this constant uh, past versus present mm-hmm. uh, way of living and yeah. just be be present to just sit there and stare at an electrical outlet mm-hmm. and and not even think about the electrical outlet to just be this moment of perception. Uh, and another thing that's interesting to think about the location of consciousness is the idea of losing consciousness while being conscious, Mm -hmm. uh, if this makes any sense. Not not like going under general anesthesia or something. But uh, one way of thinking about it is that we're constantly losing consciousness whenever we become absorbed in something. Yeah. You know, like when you're absorbed in watching a movie and you've you've hit that point where you stopped thinking about yourself sitting there uh, reflecting on things and you're just in the story. You could look at that as a sort of loss of consciousness. You stop being. You stop being aware of the self mm-hmm. and you, you're just experience, just pure experience. And the same thing happens in uh, like some kind of creative projects. You know, you can be like writing or, or yeah, you're painting or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a lot of what the flow state often seems to be mm-hmm. is it's like that that physical location of consciousness disappears. You no longer have a sense that your thinking is taking place somewhere. You just 
are what you're thinking about. Yeah, and, and there are different versions of it too because like I'll experience this kind of flow state loss of consciousness, if you will, while maybe reading something really good or or hit or writing something and I'm really into the writing, but I'll also experience it when I'm painting a miniature sometimes. So it's yeah. so my consciousness kind of becomes the tip of a paintbrush. Yeah. Uh which which is, is rather different than it becoming this uh this fictional framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in like say a, a yoga class or even outside of a yoga, like a purely, um, you know, a purely secular, purely physical activity of say running on a treadmill or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, this too can be a situation where you just become the act. You just become the physical thing that you're doing yeah. and everything else can at least for a little bit, uh, melt away. Yeah. Well, folks, I don't think we had any answers for you about the nature of consciousness. Somehow that's always the case whenever we come back to this subject. But uh, but I, I nevertheless always feel called back to it anyway. That's it for this episode. But as always, you can head on over to our mothership, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos, uh, blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook. And hey, on Facebook, we have a Facebook group now uh, called the Discussion Module. You can uh, join that group and engage in longer form discussions regarding uh, episodes that we've covered, future episodes, or just interesting scientific topics. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us directly, shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.